Hey you, how's it going? My name is Ruby Price and you are listening to the 20th episode of Fresh From The Scene. Before the show really gets started, just a little housekeeping. Make sure you're following the show on Twitter at FFTScene, that's F-F-T-S-C-E-N-E. And if you enjoy the episode, be sure to share it around. So without any further ado, here's a reason why you're all tuning into this episode, Frank Turner. listening to Fresh from the Scene with your host, Ruby Price. Welcome to Fresh from the Scene. Today's guest is the one and only Frank Turner. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, I'm all right, given the circumstances. I mean, we are talking on the day after an American election that seems to be uncertain and the day before we enter another national lockdown in this country. So like the, the bigger picture could be better. But um, on an individual level, I'm doing all right. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm Good. I've tried to avoid the news today because it's just not going to be happy. And if it is happy, it's still going to be somewhat dubious anyway, because some people can't accept losing. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's also there's nothing that people like you and I can contribute at this point. Do you know what I mean? And it's like pressing refresh on a news page. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, <laughs> What are you going to change by doing that? And I'd rather just wait and I'd like somebody to fill me in once it's over. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So for the people who aren't really familiar with you, Frank, um, in your own words, who is Frank Turner? Why should people <laughs> care? <laughs> um, well, I'm not at all sure why anybody should care, but um, uh, I am uh, a kid who grew up listening to punk rock music um, and playing in the hardcore punk bands. And then about 15 years ago, started messing around with country and folk music. Uh, and then uh, I started making records under my own name and um, uh, it's gone reasonably well. I make a living doing it, which is a huge privilege. And uh, I, yeah, I write songs and when, in, when there's not a global pandemic going on, I tend to tour and play shows um, and release records and that kind of thing. And it's, uh, yeah, I enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you'd make it to, you know, two and a half thousand if you didn't enjoy it. Well, you'd hope so. I mean, at the very least, you'd hope somebody would be like, dude, you don't have to do this. Yeah. Um, and indeed, you know, I'd like to think that I've got reasonably good at playing shows in that amount of time. Again, if I hadn't, that would be pretty depressing. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, actual playing, there are a lot of different components to what I do for a living. I write songs, I record songs, and I perform. Um, uh, and the performing part of it is my favourite bit and what I usually spend the majority of my time doing. Um, and this year has been pretty rough uh, because I've not really been able to do that. Mm. Like I did say to myself, oh, I'm going to stop talking about COVID on my podcast <laughs> because, you know, we've gone out of lockdown, you know, musicians are fed up of saying, well, you know, I did a live stream the other day, but, you know, um, <laughs> and then we're doing it all again. No, I know. I know. There is. A, it's pretty Groundhog Day. Um, and actually, funnily enough, so I, as, as you may know, I did an awful lot of live streams in the first quote unquote first lockdown yeah. um uh, as a fundraising thing and kind of wrapped it up for a number of reasons um one of which was that i ran out of songs i literally played <laughs> every song um that i've written and i kind of jokingly said when they announced last saturday that there was a new lockdown coming i kind of jokingly went well i guess i'm going to do some live streams again and loads of people were like yeah do live streams <laughs> fuck really um <laughs> i mean i enjoy the live streams but it's like i'm gonna be repeating myself at this point mm. and you did one of those live streams from my local venue actually um parish in huddersfield 
Oh, amazing. Which, funnily enough, was the first one, because I did 16 venues, that was the first one that came up, which I've not actually been to. But I've been chatting to the guys who run it, and it's just moved premises, is that right? Mm, Yeah. Yeah, and basically, as soon as it's possible, I am coming, and I am playing a show, because I haven't played in Huddersfield for probably, like, 13, 14 years. According to your archive, it's 2006, a venue that I don't even know. Right, okay. I'll tell you what I remember about that show, and I have a, I have a weird memory for certain like aspects of gigs. It was in this room that had kind of a low ceiling, and it had this massive like fiberglass Satan, um, but it was just from the waist up, and it was clearly had been on top of a larger building or something at some point, and it didn't fit in this room at all. It was like jammed in the room, and it was kind of behind the stage, so you played with this enormous Satan behind you which I thought was kind of awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I, it was that was the place I played. Mm. Well, I'm sure it'll go down as something for the history books because I saw that you played Huddersfield and I was like, I've lived here since 1998. I don't know what this venue is. Well, yeah, well I mean, yeah. the thing is, that, that was the point in time in my career where I literally said yes to every single show that came in. And mm. I remember the Huddersfield one being good, actually. I remember it being a really fun time. And it was the first time I ever went to Huddersfield for my sins. I'm a southerner. And I remember um, I didn't really know anything about Huddersfield before. And I guess I probably had some like shitty image in my head of like Grim Up North or whatever. And I remember arriving in the city and going, my God, this place is beautiful. You know, it's a really lovely part of the world and, and being sort of like, humbled by being corrected should we say well i hope that your you know imminent in inverted commas huddersfield return you know can go just as well it's got to be done i can't do a fundraiser for a venue and then not play that do you know what i mean come on mm. the old parish venue was one of my favorite places to go to and like the gigs there were electric so i'm hoping the new venue can produce just as good if not better yeah fingers crossed well if you've got the same people behind it there's then mm. sign should be good yeah, there are some good people there. Speaking of good people, let's talk about your buddy, John Snodgrass. <laughs> that was a great program. Yeah, you do have an, uh, is it an LP, an EP? or? Uh, it's, it's an LP, it's a full, it's 10 track records, buddies too, still buddies. Mm. Um, and which, of course, the title implies there's some backstory, and there is. Um, John's a guy, he's from, uh, he's from the American punk scene, but he was one of the first people to bring kind of country and folk influences into punk rock in the kind of early to mid 90s. Um, he was in a band called Drag the River and a band called Armchair Martian. And he's a guy, he grew up steeped in country music. So he was ideally placed to bring these two things together. I met him on a tour in America in 2009 and we became really good friends. And um, in 2010, my sister used to live in Colorado, which is where he's from. And uh, we wrote an album together in a day. Um, we kind of set ourselves this task, can we write a record in a day? And then we recorded it in a day the following day and then we put it out and it's called Buddies. And it's, you know, it's out there, people can listen to it. It kind of swings wildly between being really quite good and really quite awful because we wrote the whole thing in a day and we were drinking whiskey while we did it. And the last song, and it's probably the single worst piece of music I've ever put my name to, but you know, it happens. Um, but yeah, so once the kind of proper, really hardcore lockdown was up and running this year, I was kind of casting around for ways to keep busy. And one of the things that came up was that it had been 10 years since John and I had done Buddies. So it was like, cool, let's do you want to try and do Buddies too? Obviously, we weren't in the same place. So we wrote 10 songs in one day on uh, Skype or whatever, FaceTime or whatever. So we stuck to that part of the original like structure, the rules of the game, whatever you want to call it. 
we then spent like a month recording it remotely from each other and sending each other parts and everything. Um, but the original songs, were, we, we kept to the rule. We wrote it in a day. We didn't then change the songs afterwards. And um, it's much, much better than Buddy's One. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, it's got some real songs on it. Um, it's got some silly songs on it, too. Uh, and and I, re- I love it. And also, so I've been using Lockdown to learn how to mix and engineer and produce records properly. Um, and so I uh, arranged and recorded and mixed the whole album, which I'm quite proud of. So was it sort of like easy to recapture the feel then of the original buddies, but with an increase in quality? <laughs> I think so. And the thing is, John takes all the credit there because John is just one of the most remarkably eccentric and wonderful people I know. And um, it's kind of impossible to have a, have a, a boring time with John. He's just wild. Um, and, uh, you know, we started kind of, we started, you know, I was sitting there thinking, I mean, much as with the first one at the beginning of the day, just as I was kind of getting ready for the FaceTime to start or whatever, I was like, Christ, are we going to write 10 songs in a day? How are we going to do this? And then, like, we had the first one done in, like, 20 minutes, and it was so much fun. And it was just like, oh, yeah, this is going to be fine. Um, so, yeah, you know, he's definitely, he's, he's, a, he's a unique individual. Mm. And I've also been told I should probably ask, does this one answer what the question is of what is shutting the chicken? <laughs> uh, not really. Um, uh, Shut the chickens was just thing. So we we made the first one at my sister's house in Colorado. My sister used to keep chickens. She was on the farm out there, and it was it was getting late, and and it was sort of like the sun was going down. It was like nine pm or whatever. And my sister just called up the garden. Can you guys shut the chickens? By which he meant like put them in their hen coop or whatever I don't really know but like um and, and and I kind of understood that and John was like what the hell is shutting the chickens and then immediately grabbed a guitar and was like shut the chickens and started writing a song because that's how that day was going um I, but there's there's some call outs to the first record one of the songs on the new album is called retractions and it's a list of all the shit that we got wrong on the first one like factual errors and stuff like that because we thought we'd better set the record straight songs like uh, bad times good vibes being called a good lockdown anthem we've certainly gone through some bad times with some good vibes you've done some socially distant shows which as good as like it must be to get back on stage and obviously i think you mentioned this as well like it's not a viable solution to what's currently going on in the scene is it yeah i mean well so the, i did this kind of like government pilot show back in july which we the government sort of asked someone to do one so me and my friend ali who runs the clapping ground stepped up and we did it and the, i have to say in retrospect we kind of in terms of the way we did that handle the press and everything we kind of focused on the negative a little bit too hard <laughs> uh, we, we didn't say enough that like holy shit being back on the stage in front of a group of people is fucking amazing and i've missed it so much jay beans on toast played immediately before me and um as he came off stage i sort of said well done and he said dude you've got no idea what's about to happen he was like you're going to get on the stage and you don't know how much you've missed it till you get up there uh, and he was right um but the thing is it was really important to sort of stress that from a fundraising and from a political point of view that like it's not it wasn't like tick job done cool problem solved mm. you know because that model doesn't work for most small and independent and grassroots venues and, and it was really important that we didn't give the government the opportunity to go well we've solved that problem you know and we had people from other venues like calling us and the run up to the show being like please don't do that so it was a mixed thing i mean some of the outdoor ones were great and they do actually work better financially and all the rest of it I did one in newcastle i did one in biddeford and some in nottingham um and you know, and I think that that was just kind of starting to get going as a viable business model. And then, of course, we live in fucking 
the UK where it gets fucking cold come mid-September. Yeah. So like the last one that I did down in Biddeford in Devon, like it was so cold. <laughs> when I was playing, the sun had gone down. It was just like, Jesus Christ. Um, so I think that some of that will start up again come uh, come the spring, hopefully, and I'll be up for doing that. I mean, it's still not the same as a normal gig. You know, everybody's in kind of like circles and everything. And there's a lot, obviously all the promoters and all the venues and everybody are bending over backwards to make sure that they're sticking to the rules because we don't want to like, first of all, we don't want anyone to get ill as a result of what we're doing, but we also don't want to like, you know, get shut down by the government either. Mm. You know, um, So there's a lot of work on that level and trying to make sure that it's, um, that it's kosher, however you want to put it. Um, but it's, it's weird. Like on the one hand, like the, it's not a normal gig. It's really strange. Everybody's isolated. You have to get table service or whatever. You, you know, it's almost like you've got to ask permission to go to the toilet. Yeah. But it's kind of certainly the ones I've done so far. That is e- easily counterbalanced by how fucking amazing it is to just be at a gig, whether as a performer or as an audience member. You know, it's just kind of oh cool. I mean, you know, it balances out. It, I had this wonderful moment. Um, the Nottingham. I did two shows in Nottingham, and um, the show was kind of run by the guys from Rock City, who are old friends mm. so um all the sound crew and everybody were people i knew and there was this beautiful moment on showing up where me and the sound guy who's an old friend we were just chatting and it was like how amazing is it that we work in a job where fucking everybody is stoked to be at work do you know what i mean like yeah. the sound crew and the security and the bar staff and me and the audience everyone was just like yay this is happening and that's cool because that's not true of a lot of jobs do you know what i mean and like i'm it's a reminder that i'm really really lucky to do what i do for a living mm. yeah as a music journalist like gigs have been my life for the last five years and right. to not you know be involved in anything since well march it's yeah it's really sucked and like the gigs that I've missed this year which fortunately have been rescheduled but you know this year for people who are like you know in love with music involved in the music scene and the people especially you know who make their livelihoods off it this year has just been so fucking depressing catastrophic you know and um yeah it's difficult to overstate and I, I think I had a really weird moment in the middle of uh, kind of the kind of like August-ish when the, the lockdown stuff was really easing off in this country where it was really strange it was like the more that things go back to normal the more I just felt unemployed yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? because it wasn't going back from normal for me for my job and like a lot of my friends who don't work in the entertainment industry or the hospitality industry were kind of like yeah it's pretty much back to normal now and I was like good for you yeah <laughs> you know, it's, it really isn't for me and that's true of course across the industry and um, you know, there are greater problems in this world, and I, I'm not sure that I want to make it into an enormous sub story. But at the same time, you know, it's a business model that relies around gathering large numbers of people together in small spaces. And it mm. turns out that we're not allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah. Or even in some cases, a small number of people in yeah, but, spaces, right. or, but they're still right. very packed together, which is sort of still, you know, against yeah. the sort of message that's. You know, we're trying to. I think. I think one of the things that is has been, and this is a silver lining to a very large cloud, and obviously the cloud is bigger. But like one of the things that has been cool is that doing a lot of live streaming has really like laser pinpointed what's great about gigs. Do you know what I mean? It's like I'm still playing, people are still listening. Why isn't this anywhere near as good as a gig? And the reason is, in my opinion, what it shows is that the best and the most important part of a show is the, is the gathering. 
is that sense of a group of people coming together in a space to be together, to be in each other's company, to be squished against each other and to spill beer on each other and to crowd surf over each other and whatever. And it's like, that's the thing that's magic, you know, mm. and, and you can't fake it and you can't do it over Zoom and you can't do it over YouTube, you know. And obviously in the short term, that's depressing, but it's kind of a nice thing to realise that it was, you know, I mean, in a way, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's importantly humbling as an artist. It's like, it isn't just a show because I'm there playing music. It's only a show if the audience is there too. They, they mm. are equally, if not more important to it being good. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's really uh, coming together. It's, it's more of like a, you know, live stream practice if no one's there sort of, you know, Right. engaging or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, right, totally. I mean, it, it took a while to get used to just sort of finishing a song and nothing happens. Yeah. You're just <laughs> you having know? to play like a clap track in your head. Just like... Yeah. yeah. Well, my friend Sean McGowan actually had a clap track on a speaker when he was doing one of his live streams and he'd finish the song and press a button and it would go... Um, which I thought was pretty funny. But it, then this is part of what Jay was talking about in the grand is that, you know, when the show finished, at the, when they finished the song at the grand and people applauded, it, it was physically like visceral. It was like, oh shit. Yeah. Like, you know, and it, there were definitely moments, particularly in like April and May, where it was easy for me to get to a place where I was thinking that like I'd cease to exist almost, you know, as an artist. And it was, this is perhaps a sort of slightly selfish thing to say, but it was just really nice to know that there are people who still kind of remember you know and who still care mm. so let's move away from lockdown talk and let's mm. just talk about music again so yeah obviously like you're still here and all of that and people are talking to you but like how has it been obviously like coming from that hardcore background and blending it with folk and then you know every now and then dipping back into either at the same time well i guess i mean the thing is like a word that gets sort of like shoved in my direction pretty often is folk punk and i don't I didn't sit down to play folk punk music, you know, I was, and in fact, one of the things that's funny to me is like, particularly my first couple of records, I was just trying to make straight up folk and country records, but because I learned how to play the guitar and how to sing in the context of a punk band, you know, just the physicality of it, I play guitar very hard and I sing very loud and, and I don't know, I certainly didn't and don't really even now know how to play like proper country guitar or proper folk guitar or whatever. So it ended up being this hybrid, but I wasn't trying to make it a hybrid. I was just trying to make a folk and country record, but it just sort of bled through. And I think the thing is like, you know, the older I get, the less I care about the genre, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, there's, there's a time and a place for those discussions, but like, in terms of writing music and making music, I don't want to be thinking about that while I'm doing that. I had quite a, um, a cool like moment of liberation on my fourth record. There's a song called One Foot Before the Other. And the thing with that is like, I started writing it and it felt like a million dead song, my old band. And I instinctively kind of went, well, well, no, I can't do that. And then I went, well, why fucking not? <laughs> you know, it's my music, I can do what I want. And also like Millie Dead made two records and broke up years ago, fuck it. And and it was this kind of realization that I can do whatever I want musically, you know, it's just my name. And and that's kind of fun, you know? So like um, these days, obviously, you know, an awful lot of my heart belongs to punk and hardcore. And I think that it's, no matter how much any of us try and get away from this, music that you fall in love with between the age of like six, 16 to 25 will always be more meaningful to you than anything you hear afterwards or, or at the very least you fall in love with a much higher quantity of music in that period of time because you're at this you know emotionally formative and impressionable age so you know i go back to nartex and descendants and sick of it all and blah blah blah, blah, blah often but uh and, you know i try and keep up with some of the new kind of punk and hardcore and metal stuff that's coming out um i'm not 
brilliant at that, but I give it a go. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, and, and then I, I fell in love with, like I say, country and folk music. And, and um, there are a few things I enjoy more in life than sipping a tequila and listening to Towns Van Zandt records, you know, um, which is actually my plan tonight um, <laughs> to welcome in the new lockdown. At this point in my life, I can choose whatever I want. It tends to be the case that what I want is more often than not either kind of punk rock or kind of country music. But I also listen to a lot of kind of weirdo electro stuff and like ambient techno and that kind of thing. So whatever. Mm. I think like the one thing that's always important when writing music is that, you know, you're writing music. So Mm. fuck genre, really. Right, totally. And also, most importantly, fuck everyone else when you're writing. (laughs) It's like, you know, I, I just believe so when I first started writing songs for my solo career it was just me trying to write what felt like a cool song with a guitar in my room with no expectation that anybody else would ever hear it and you know sure some of those songs have done quite well and lots of people have heard them but like when I write I still try and get back into that mindset you know I think it would be disastrous for me to think like well you know I'm going to be playing this song that is on the palace when I'm writing like fuck off like (laughs) you know just 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 write what feels good you know, and and like I often feel like you can hear when a song has been like written to be popular or for a specific mm. audience, or whatever. You know, and it just suddenly like the sort of it's trying too hard to like be an anthem or whatever. <laughs> it's just like no, no. Um, and obviously, you know, I want to push myself and and try different things creatively and and um, stylistically and all that kind of thing. But like. Yeah, it's just, I'm trying to write songs that I think are good songs. And if other people agree, that's awesome. And not least because it means that I get to do this for a living for a bit longer. <laughs> but like, I shouldn't think about that while I write. Yeah, it's sort of like the musical equivalent of fan service. Right, you know, and it's like, yeah. And the thing is, there is a certain type, there is a part of the music world that is written for like public popularity and consumption. And that's the mainstream pop world. And there's nothing wrong with it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It exists and it's, I'm, I don't care. I have so many friends and indeed when I was younger, I used to do this, who spent their time getting angry about like Simon Cowell or whatever. And it's just, it's like, it's just a different thing. He does a different thing to me. Um, and the bands that he works with and the groups that he works with, they do things that I don't know how to do. There's no universe in which I know how to be in a boy band or indeed write songs for a boy band. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so hats off. Well done. It's just not this you know we're just doing slightly different things and there's space enough in this world for us both to exist Mm. and most importantly as well the fans of that kind of stuff enjoy that kind of stuff and i think that's the most important aspect of it oh absolutely like i have this whole thing this is a minor rant so forgive me this but it's my my grand (laughs) unified theory of kasabian right um i I don't really like kasabian's music and i never have um obviously this whole thing has been slightly complicated by the news about them more recently but not that I'm in any way belittling that, but that aside, just for a second, mm-hmm. like I don't like Kasabian's music, but when Kasabian got up in the morning at their peak, they just made Kasabian fans happy. And they play a Kasabian show and Kasabian fans would be happy. And they put a Kasabian record and Kasabian fans would be happy. And I think more power to them, fucking A, keep doing it, do more records, play more shows, play bigger shows, be more successful. I, I Because you're adding to the sum total of happiness in the universe. And the fact that there, there are some people who kind of get angry that there are people out there liking music that they don't like. It's like, why do you fucking care? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's such a waste of energy. Like, I'm happy that there are thousands of Michael Bolton fans out there enjoying whatever the hell Michael Bolton is doing in his life right now. Um, good for him and for them, and long may they continue. Like, they're not fucking making the world a worse place as far as I can see. Um, and it's not my problem, you know, if I don't like it. So, uh, and so, yeah, so just try and focus on the positive. There's more music in the world that any one human can ever listen to, you know? So 
if you try and identify the shit that you do like and enjoy it and explore it, you know, and if there's something you don't like, cool, just draw a line around it and move, drive past it. Yeah. Like as someone who grew up with McFly being my favorite band, I know exactly like the receiving end of, you know, being a Kasabian fan or whatever along those lines. Oh, sure. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, the, I, there are, it's funny. Sometimes people ask the question, what's your guilty pleasure? Which I think is such a dumb question because I don't feel guilty about anything that I like. Um, uh, but like, I love Abbott. I think Abbott one of the greatest fans ever. And I have fans who, I have friends who, who take exception to that. And I'm just like, whatever, fuck off. Yeah. Um, Does your mother know is a tune? I just think that if you want to get into the technicalities of songwriting, they are unsurpassed, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, I'm really glad that you're a McFly fan, and I hope that they brought you much joy and still do. Yeah, I mean, they brought me more joy now that they've come back after 10 years. Right. Like 10 years, <laughs> yeah. but anyway. Are they doing McFly now, or are they doing McBusted? Or is uh, that thing? They're or doing is McFly that? again. McBusted was, I think, 2014 to 20, early 2016, um, and then... Uh, Charlie Simpson rejoined Busted. Busted right. became a thing again, and then McFly became a thing again. Fair enough. I know I've met Charlie a few times, and he's a nice dude. Yeah, every sort of like podcast or in like thing I've ever seen with Charlie, like he just seems like such a nice guy. So just sort of like whilst I've still got you as well, folk seems the perfect genre in terms of making storytelling all the folk songs i ever tend to like gravitate to are telling the story of someone and i just think that's fantastic yeah i mean it's, it's a big part of the genre it doesn't have to just be a folk thing i think springsteen's one of the fantastic storyteller and whether or not he's a folk singer is a, a contentious and boring argument but mm. <laughs> but um you know yeah it's it's a wonderful thing i mean i i, I tried to be a to- storyteller in the way that i write i did a record called no man's land that was trying to tell stories that weren't about me for once mm. in my life because i figured that both me and everybody else is probably bored with my life by this point um uh which I re- i'm really proud of that record um and uh that was fun but you know yeah just telling stories and and particularly when people tell unusual stories you know there's an album um there's a band called uh me without you and they put out a record called it's all crazy it's all false it's all a dream it's all right um about 10 years ago and that record changed my fucking life you know what i was saying earlier about only being hit by music in a certain age group that was a record that destroyed me when i was older because the ambition of the storytelling and of the language on that record is just unfucking believable and it's you listen to it and you're kind of like i mean are you allowed to tell stories like this in songs it just seems like no one ever has you know but even you know tom waits or nick cave or or or, or indeed regina specter who's one of my very favorite songwriters like yeah they're telling kind of Telling stories, which is cool, but telling unusual stories, you know what I mean? There's a Regina Spectre song called Chemo Limo, which is a story about a woman who is dying of cancer and it's, she's in America, so she's paid for treatment. She decides to hire a limousine rather than pay for chemotherapy. And it's incredibly emotional and emotionally complex song and image and all the rest of it. And, and I just love it because it just leads your mind in so many places, you know? And, and uh, again, I don't know whether Regina Spectre is a folk singer, but, um, uh, storytelling is awesome yeah <laughs> yeah and as briefly as possible since you know we're almost out of time people should go and listen to buddies two still buddies on the 13th of november please <laughs> and where should they find you if they want to find you uh google um no i mean you know i, I have a website i have a twitter and a facebook um my email address is on my website if anyone wants to get in touch um uh yeah i'm, I'm pretty easy to find um uh yeah and enjoy the music and there'll be links to everything in the description of this podcast but yeah thank you for coming on the podcast frank my pleasure thank you for having me it's been lots of fun and i can't wait to see you at the parish in huddersfield when that I eventually happens that. i will see you in huddersfield absolutely awesome
You're listening to Fresh from the Scene with Ruby Price. Thank you very much for listening. I sincerely hope you enjoyed that episode because I certainly enjoyed recording it. Thank you so much to Frank for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for Anthea at Extra Mile Recordings for organising it for us. As I said during the episode, there are links down below to all of the things that you need to do in order to, you know, find Frank, listen to Buddies too. And as I mentioned at the start of the episode, make sure that you're following Fresh From The Scene on Twitter at FFTScene. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rubes, R-U-U-B-E-Z, or on Instagram, Rubes001. And if you did enjoy the episode, please remember to share it on social media because that will make so much difference. And also what makes a difference is leaving a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to it on provided that that is something that it allows you to do. If you do want to support the show any further, I do have a coffee account. I also have a Patreon, but that's more for my YouTube stuff. So I try and keep the two separate. But there's links to all of this in the description below if any of this takes your fancy. So once again, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you had fun. And I'll see you in the next episode of Fresh From The Scene.